Well, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, I'll go ahead and read verses 9 through 13. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather to look at your word again this morning. Thank you um, that we can be taught uh, by the Spirit of God. Jesus here is teaching us to pray, uh, addressing you as Father, the place where you dwell in heaven. And um, we pray, Lord, that, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do pray that you would give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts and not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And uh, truly yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, last week we began a, a short series on prayer, specifically the disciples' prayer here, here in Matthew. Five verses as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Prayer is the most basic Christian activity it's really the first thing and the last thing that true Christians do. And as I said last week, uh, prayer for the Christian is spiritual breathing. You will soon find a living man who does not breathe as to find a Christian who does not pray. But last week we began with a few preliminaries concerning this model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, he gave it to them to teach them how to pray. Uh, so this prayer is for every child of God. And we briefly, briefly looked at, number one, the importance of prayer. As I said, prayer is the highest human activity, um, the highest activity of the human soul. Uh, we also looked at number two, the example of prayer, which when the disciples saw Jesus pray, they wanted to pray as he prayed. We also looked at number three, the protocol in prayer. Uh, we saw that there is an etiquette in prayer. We can't be ignorant when we pray or come to God nonchalantly when we pray. To pray the wrong way, no matter how sincere we are, no matter how desperate or how long the prayer is, those things aren't pleasing to God if we're, we're ignorant or nonchalant in prayer. Uh, according to Jesus' instructions here in this prayer, we pray for two reasons. Very simply, we pray for God's glory, and we pray for our good. 
that's basically how this prayer breaks down, and we do it in that order, God first and then us. When we pray for God's glory, we put ourselves in the best frame of mind for prayer. Uh, focusing on God first instead of us aligns us with His will, not ours. But then we are to pray for our good with God in focus. When we have God in focus, we only see that we have three real needs. Everything else is a desire, a strong desire, a concern, a want, but three basic needs. Daily bread, daily forgiveness, and daily protection. Much of what we pray for are not needs. Again, they may be desires or concerns, but they are not actual needs. When we focus on God as we are instructed here, we also looked at number four, the structure of prayer. We said that this prayer breaks down into three parts. The prelude in verse 9, which is our Father in heaven. The petitions in the end of verse 9 through the beginning of verse 13. And again, those are in two sets. The first set is focusing on God's glory. Second set on our good. But concerning God's glory, we are to ask God to make his name holy, make his kingdom come, and make his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are three petitions concerning God and his glory. Concerning our good, we are to ask God to give us daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection. We also pointed out that one of these petitions is physical and the other two spiritual, uh, which should tell us where our focus or uh, the majority of our prayer should be. Daily bread deals with our physical needs, but then the other two petitions, daily forgiveness and daily protection from sin, really deals with our spiritual needs. Uh, This shows us that we are in much more need of God's spiritual care than his physical care. Sometimes we reverse those. We focus much more on the physical, sometimes exclusively. But according to Jesus, we should be focusing on the spiritual. We then have the postlude or the conclusion of the prayer um, may not be part of What Jesus said here, this may be an addition to the text by the church uh, at a later date, but if it's not found in the best manuscripts. But if it was part of Jesus' original words, it attributes the kingdom and the power and the glory to God alone. Now, even if they're not original to the text or Jesus' words, they're still true. But before we move on, I didn't have a chance to finish last week. I'll give you a few more points. But number five, the absences in prayer, the absences. Uh, Notice what Jesus did not say in his instructions here. Remember, the disciples asked Jesus to pray. We learned that from Luke 11, where Jesus taught them the same prayer. He did not say in what posture we are to pray in. David prayed many times prostrate on his bed. 
Jesus prayed standing or kneeling. So posture is not really the main issue in prayer. Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with what posture we pray. Neither did he say where we are to pray. Uh, He said in verse 6 to pray in your secret room or your closet, but he wasn't referring to that literally because he prayed in all kinds of places. He really meant by that, pray privately, secretly, wherever you're at. I mean, wherever you're at can be your closet. Uh, I know that there are some people that actually go in a closet to pray because they take this literally. That's okay, but we're not limited to that. I mean, Jesus prayed in mountains and gardens and all kinds of private places. Isaac prayed in a field. Peter prayed on a rooftop. Jonah prayed in the belly of a fish. It doesn't really matter where you pray. So that's not the issue. That wasn't important to Jesus at all. Also notice that he didn't say when we are to pray. I mean, we can have formal times. We know that Daniel did. He prayed three times a day. But I would say that Daniel prayed a whole lot more than three times a day. Those were his formal times of prayer. But Jesus prayed all the time. Sometimes he prayed all night long. And he prayed wherever he happened to be. I'm sure when he was walking from town to town, and we've talked about his rigorous schedule, hundreds of cities that he, he went to in his three-year ministry, sometimes two or three times, sometimes visiting three, up to three or four towns in a day. Uh, uh, he was relentless in his, in his schedule. But I'm sure while he was walking or power walking or even jogging from town to town, he was praying. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we are to pray without ceasing. I mean, he meant to be in a spirit of prayer throughout the day. Matthew Henry said, We are commanded to pray always, to pray without ceasing, to continue in prayer, because we must always have in us a disposition to the duty. We must be constant in it and never grow weary of it. So I think this idea of having a a private prayer time is, is a good idea, but it shouldn't stop there. We should be praying all the time while we're driving, while we're walking, whatever we're doing, while we're working. If it doesn't cause us to be nonproductive or jeopardize our safety, But number six, the instruction of prayer. And here we have to ask ourselves, are we to learn a prayer or are we to learn how to pray? And I think this has been confusing for people, for Christians over the centuries. I think the answer is simple. We are to learn how to pray. I don't think Jesus was telling the disciples to memorize this prayer and this is all you pray. Jesus is not teaching them a prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. As I said last week in Luke 11, one one of the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. He didn't say, teach us a prayer. So here we see in Matthew 6, 9, 
that Jesus says, pray in this way or in this manner, right? In this manner, therefore, pray. I mean, to repeat this prayer as a sum total of your prayer life, which many religious people do, is that's not prayer at all. And it's not at all what Jesus was telling his disciples. I mean, he actually taught against repeating the prayer just in the previous verses. He says, don't use vain repetitions in verse 7. So if we mindlessly say this prayer... We are, we are directly disobeying what he taught in the previous couple of verses. I mean, given these instructions, it's ironic that this is the most vainly repeated prayer that has ever been prayed. But nowhere in the New Testament do we see anyone ever repeat this prayer. Is that amazing? I mean, if Jesus said to pray this prayer, literally, we should see it every time we see the disciples pray or anyone else pray in the New Testament. That's not the case at all. But it's sadly been done that way in the church and in private prayer for nearly 2,000 years. Now, it's okay to repeat this. It's okay to memorize it for meditation as we would any other part of Scripture. But this prayer is a skeleton for us to put muscles and flesh on. It's a framework to expand on with our thoughts from our own hearts and circumstances. That's the point here. It's an outline to put our own words around. It's a guide to lead us into the presence of God. To help us organize our thoughts when we do pray. And when we sincerely pray in this manner or in this way, as Jesus says, or according to this outline, God always hears us and he always responds. We never have to wonder if he hears us or wonder if he'll answer us and give us what we ask for. But number seven, the nature of this prayer The prayer shows us our proper relationship to God and also our need for Him on a daily basis. I mean, A, it shows us our relationship to God. Our Father shows us the Father-Child relationship. Holy Be Your Name shows us the Deity-Worshipper relationship. Your Kingdom Come shows us the King-Subject relationship. Your will be done shows us the master-servant relationship. Give us our daily bread shows us the benefactor-receiver relationship. Forgive us our debts shows us the offended-offender relationship. And lead us not into temptation shows us the shepherd-sheep relationship. All of those relationships we have with God. And each one of these petitions shows us or magnifies for us a different relationship that we have with God. But B, it shows us our need for God. And this is in relationship to past, present, and future. Did you see that? Give us our daily bread as a plea for God to deal with our present circumstances. 
Forgive us our debts is a plea for God to deal with us in our past circumstances. And lead us not into temptation is a plea for God to deal with our future circumstances. So let, why don't we begin here with the first part of the prayer. It's the prelude, verse 9, in the middle part of the verse. And it's our Father. The first thing Jesus tells us about prayer is that we are to pray to our Father. Does that mean we can't pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit? No, that's not. We see, we see folks pray to Jesus in the New Testament. But he's talking about the dominance of our prayer, you know, the primacy of our prayer. I mean, this is the most, part, this is the most important part of the prayer. Because if we don't understand this, we can't pray right. If we don't know who we are addressing when we pray, we can't pray properly. And I think this is why all of us, but many in the church, have such skewed prayers, uh, such improper prayers, because we don't know who we're addressing. So when we pray, we are praying to our Father. And this is probably where many Christians fail in their prayers. It's in their view of God as Father. All of us have different views of what a father is. I mean, if we were all going to write a one-page paper on what a father is, we're going to get, as many of us are in the room, we're going to get that many different ideas of what a father is. I mean, many Christians today are ignorant of God as a true father because of a lack of biblical teaching. I mean, many have created God as their father in their own image. We all do that to a certain extent, every one of us. And as we mature in the faith, we should mitigate the errors we have about God as father. That is one of the most important things we can do in Christianity, in our own Christian life. Minimize or mitigate the errors we have about who God is. And particularly in our country and culture today, the image of Father is all but destroyed in many cases. I mean, we're living in a horrible time as to come up with a common understanding of what a Father is. This is the worst time in American history for us to do that. I mean, in family after family, fathers are either irresponsible or absent. How do you have an understanding of what a father is when that happens? I mean, the nuclear family is almost gone. I mean, for us to have a reasonable model for a father is difficult at best. Psychology has not helped us either in our quest for a true image of a father. In many therapy sessions, we're told that whatever our problem is, we are the way we are to one degree or another because our fathers are responsible for messing us up. And I'm not saying that's not all true. 
But even the best fathers have their flaws. There's only one perfect father. I mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us this as he teaches on the subject of God being a perfect father. In Hebrews 12.10, he speaks of our earthly fathers that, quote, They indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but God chastens us for our profit. He's comparing earthly fathers with God our Father. And they're two totally different persons or personalities. And he's saying you cannot compare an earthly father with a father in heaven. So we can't even look at earthly fathers to get an image of our heavenly father. But the problem is that's where we get our image of God. And it should be the other way around. We as earthly fathers should figure out how we should be a father to our children as God is a father to us. I mean, the implication here in Hebrews 12 is concerning good earthly fathers, they do their best to correct their children, but even at that, they do it imperfectly. The best father on the planet does it imperfectly. God, however, as a father, does it perfectly. So you can't compare the two. I mean, the image of a father in the human mind, whether a person admits it or not, is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I mean, it's one of the biggest obsessions for many, many people. Because they didn't have a father or they had such a terrible father, at least in their minds. And I think the reason people seek after what a true father is supposed to be is because God made it that way. He wants us to know what a good father is supposed to look like. I mean, he gave, us, he gave each of us a father to bring us into this world, whether they were there for us or not after we were born. We wouldn't be here without our fathers. I had a great father. I mean, he had so many flaws. But he was a great father. He wasn't a believer until the end of his life. As an adult, he was a somewhat troubled man with many, many problems. But as a Christian, after I got saved, and one of the great things that happened to me was that I went through the Bible to find out what a good father was, my heavenly father, and I didn't try and compare my dad to God. That's that's ridiculous. Why would I even want to do that? I mean, compared to many fathers, he did the best he could in raising his children. He learned whatever he knew from his father, who also did the best in raising his children. My dad came from a family of nine brothers and sisters, so he didn't get a lot of parental attention. 
The house was so crowded when my aunts and uncles were growing up that one of my aunts actually lived with somebody outside the household because they couldn't take care of her. Imagine what my aunt went through trying to figure out what a good father was. But my dad enlisted in the Army when he was 18. He fought in the Korean War. And without a doubt, it was the worst experience of his life. The war haunted him until the day he died. I mean, it was a war that really destroyed his marriage with my mom. It was a war that contributed to all his emotional and psychological problems. And sadly, it was the war, almost 50 years later, that killed him. I mean, in that war, he saw things that no one should see. You know, that war was a different war than the wars today. In that war, it was primarily hand-to-hand combat. But he never talked about it, except one time. And what he told me haunted him until the Lord took him home. It shaped everything he thought about. It shaped everything he did. shaped every decision that he made. And like it or not, I'm a product of the experience of my dad's life. But looking back, I understand why he was the way he was. I mean, he raised me with that experience continually haunting him, so it had to affect me. And my kids are the product of that experience in my dad's life because I'm a product of it. And in spite of what people today call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which my dad was never treated for, I mean, we're talking over 30 years ago. They didn't even know what it was back then. I mean, he still loved me. He still loved his family the best he knew how. But because of his own sin and because of the sin in this world, he did his fatherly duties imperfectly. He loved me. I loved him until the day that he died. And today, by the grace of God, honestly, I only remember the good times. And I'm really thankful for that. But as much as I love my dad, and as much as he tried to prepare me for life, I think he did a better job than most, as handicapped as he was. He wasn't a perfect father, not by any means. And it's because of that that I don't make a conscious comparison of him to God. I don't shape my thoughts about God as a father from my experience when I was a kid. And I venture to say that most Christians do. You have to consciously dismiss your earthly father when you're thinking about your heavenly father. Because the two are not comparable. One is an earthly father who is sinful, imperfect, confused at times, talking about my dad, angry at times, needy at times, helpless at times, incompetent at times, ignorant at times. And now he's gone. The other, my heavenly Father, is all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite, eternal, all-merciful, all-loving, and with me forever. So how do you compare those two? There's no comparison. I mean, none of us had perfect fathers. Even the best earthly fathers fall short. 
And none of us men who have children are perfect fathers. That's why I've told my kids constantly when they're, don't compare me to God, please. It's the last thing I want you to do. Sometimes I was too strict. Sometimes I was too lenient. Sometimes I was caring. Sometimes I wasn't. Sometimes I had a good attitude. Sometimes I had a bad attitude. Sometimes I had answers for them. Sometimes I didn't. So God is not like me. And I'm not like him. I do try and pattern myself after him the best that I can. But I still fall way short. But if we know Christ as Savior, God is our Father. That's what Jesus says. Our Father. Notice, He is not our buddy. He's not a cosmic Santa Claus. He's not a vending machine. He's not an absentee Father. He's also not a disciplinarian waiting to whack us upside the head with a two-by-four every time we fall out of line. That's not the picture you get of God in the Bible. Neither is he an ogre who wants to scare his children into submission. He's a father who loves every one of his children. He's a father who is there for every one of his children. He is always good. He's the perfect disciplinarian. He's the perfect shoulder to cry on. He tolerates no sin in the lives of his children. He hates rebellious hearts and attitudes, and he will take any measure necessary to drive those things out of his children's lives. He always does everything for our good. And like a good father, he will never give us what is harmful, and he will never abandon us. These are all characteristics of our Father. His greatest goal in our lives is to conform us into the image of His Son. And He will never allow anything to get in the way of that, even to the point of making our lives miserable until we do conform. Because that's for our good. And we learn all of what I just described, not from a book, not from an earthly father, not from a webinar. We learn it from Scripture. That's the only place we can learn about God as our Father. We need to stop making comparisons with everything else around us, teaching us what God is like as our Father. That's ridiculous. Because nothing else around us is like Him. Only Scripture can guide our thinking in understanding Him as a Father. Too often we're prone to think of God as being like an earthly father when in fact we can't look at him like that at all. We have to go to Scripture. So, when we pray, which is the most intimate time we have with him, we have to know who we're praying to. It's going to govern our prayers. It's going to govern what we ask for. It's going to govern what we should expect. And if we don't let Scripture shape our view of God as our Father, we will create God as our Father in our image, which really is idolatry. And we could end up, just like Jesus says in the previous verses here, 
we could end up just like the pagans who made their gods into monsters. That's why Jesus says, don't be like them in this manner, pray. So when Jesus says to pray, our Father, we've got a lot of learning to do. And to pray intelligently to him, we need to know who he is. This is why I am so thankful that I have a Bible. And I am so thankful that I read through it once a year. I mean, I read it from cover to cover. I do that for a reason. Because I want to get the whole picture. You know, some Christians, they, go to, they, go to a, they have a favorite book, and that's all they read, a couple of books. Or they don't read the Old Testament. They just read the New Testament. No. You've got to read the whole thing. I've been doing it for years. And that has been tremendously helpful in me understanding who God is. That's the reason I do it. If people ask me, you know, what do you recommend for a Bible study, you know, a personal devotion? It's like, read your Bible. Take a legal pad and, okay, this year I'm going to read through the whole thing and I'm just going to jot down. What is God like? Or how did God react to sin? Or how did God take care of his people? Those are all little things. You can make a list that you will never finish. Just read through the Bible every year and look for something different every year. That will shape your view of who God is, who we are, what our relationship to him is, what his relationship is with his people. How can you come up with anything more practical than that and anything more beneficial than that? You're not going to get that out of any kind of book study. I'm not saying don't do a book study. I'm just saying you got to do more than that. You can't rely on opinions. You have to rely on Scripture. I mean, just after a two or three or four readings through Scripture, after two or three or four years, you're going to have a tremendously different view of God and your relationship to Him which is what God wants. He wants us to have a biblical view. That's why I say reading the scriptures and praying is not academic. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's how we survive in this world as believers. We're going to react to the world in two ways. We're going to either react to it in a pagan fashion, in a worldly fashion, or in a biblical fashion. And if you're not saturated with this, there's only one way you're going to react. You're going to react the way everybody else around you reacts. And it's not going to happen overnight. This takes years. So if you're in it for a sprint, it's not going to work. You need to be in it for a marathon for the rest of your life. And I'm not saying it. Some people can't read the entire Bible in a year. I understand it. Take two years. Take three years. You've heard me say it a million times. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by how many words? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is every word right here. That's what we live by. Genesis through Revelation. I mean, one, one year you could do the attributes of God. You're going to have stacks of legal pads that you've accumulated over the years as to what God is like. You don't think that's going to shape a proper view of God? You're going to see His holiness, His sovereignty, His immutability, His omniscience, His wisdom, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, 
His eternality, His infinity, His justice and righteousness, His truth, His mercy, His loving kindness. I mean, the list is endless. People ask me periodically, you know, I, I, I don't know how to study the Bible. Quit studying and just read it. And just jot some things down. It's not rocket science. I mean, you can go through this with kids in third, fourth, and fifth, sixth grade. Just read it. and What does it say? What does it say about God? Well, it says God is good. Okay, write that down. You don't need a seminary degree for this. And that's what you meditate on. It's what I read this morning. God is good. This is what God did to his, for his people in that particular time and place. He'll do the same thing for me. Because that's his nature. There's no one else like him. So we need to avoid making a non-biblical image of God in our minds and let Scripture shape our concept of him. I mean, I run into people, I talk to them, you know, about God and events and stuff, and they come up with the weirdest stuff. I'm thinking, where did you get that? That's not in the Bible. God's not like that. It's called ignorance. And how do you fix ignorance? You fix it with education. You educate yourself. Well, I believe God is like this. Well, you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't make it true. You need some evidence. You need something to base it on. I was talking to a girl yesterday, or maybe the day before. Everything she understands about God is based on feeling. It has nothing to do with the Bible. This is how I feel. I said, how do you know you're right? Well, it's how I feel. Well, how do you know that how you feel is right? Well, it's how I feel. I mean, this is it. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. I mean, when we read our Bibles, it should be for the express purpose First of all, and we can read it from a number of different things, but first of all, of seeing what God is like. I mean, as Christians, there's nothing more important. Because if we don't know who God is, we can't pray to him as we should. I'm just looking in the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. This is great. Talking about asking, seeking, and knocking, of course, we always take that out of context. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds to him who knocks. It will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, right, as fathers... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is who God is. He gives good things to His children. He doesn't give us a serpent when we ask for bread or a stone when we ask for a fish. But there's a lot of Christians who think that's what God does. They think that he's mean, that because they're sinners, that he's there to unload the truck on them. That's not who God is. And we need to keep 
pouring Scripture into our minds so we get the proper view. I mean, did you know that Jesus came for the expressed purpose to show us who the Father is? That's why he came. Look with me at John 14. (laughs) You see, we're like the disciples. We make it so complicated. Jesus makes it so simple. He's, why are you complicating this? You remember in the upper room, the disciples were freaking out because Jesus is leaving. What are we going to do? You know, we thought we were going to be sitting in the kingdom and on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of the house of Israel. And now he says he's leaving. I mean, everything we worked for for three and a half years is going down the drain. Jesus says in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Here he's equating God the Father with God the Son. Two different persons, but they're the same character, the same attributes. Just like you believe in God the Father, believe the same way in me. Absolutely no difference. He's talking about God as Father. He says in the next verse, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you in his Father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know the way, and the way you, you, where I go and the way you know. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to the Father's house in heaven, you got to go through Jesus. He said, if you had known me, this is where it gets. Now he's exposing the ignorance of the disciples. That's us, okay? There, there was 12 men back then or 11 men back then. Judas is already gone. But he's saying, i got to straighten you out on your understanding who the Father is. You think those disciples are any different than us? You think they didn't have messed up fathers? You don't think they had, didn't have imperfect fathers? Listen to what he says. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Well, what's Jesus saying? If you see Jesus, you see the father. Now, he's not saying the same person. What he's saying here is, if you've seen me and my attributes and my character, you've seen the character and attributes of the Father. We are identical. However Jesus lived on this earth and treated his disciples and taught them, God the Father is a mere image of that in the way he acts and what he does for his children. There's no discrepancy between the Father and the Son in how they act or in what attributes they have. So if you see Jesus, you can begin to understand the characteristics and attributes of the Father. And Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said, you got to be kidding me. Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? 
were identical. Two different persons, but they are identical in the way they act and the attributes that they have. This completely destroys most of our understanding of God as Father. There are so many people in the church that think God is, you know, God's the angry one. You know, of the Old Testament, when Jesus came along, everything's rosy. That's ridiculous. They're both the same in both testaments. Nothing ever changes. From eternity, they are identical. You don't think Jesus ever got angry? Read the Gospels. Read the book of Revelation. When unbelievers are crying out to the rocks to fall on them rather than stand before Christ. They're identical. So when we pray our Father, we need to have a proper concept. There is no other person who is as consistent, who is as good, who is as kind and loving and protective and encouraging as God is as a father to his children. One other thing before we wrap this up, back in Matthew. Look at the first word in the petition. Our Father. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, My Father? It's not my, 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 me, me, me. It's our Father. Plural. When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father. You are part of a family. You are not an island. You don't just concern yourself with you. Your concern is for the family. Give us our daily bread, right? Not give me, 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 me. Forgive us our debts. Don't lead us into temptation. So what are we doing? We're not just praying for ourselves. We're praying for our brothers and sisters. I mean, our, our society breeds this island mentality. That we can isolate ourselves whenever we want. That's new in history. I mean, any time before this, it was all family. When you read the Bible, it's all about family. It's not about individuals. Tribes, clans, the children of Israel. Sons and daughters of the living God. This is a family. We've been adopted as sons, right? God always wants us to remember he's got many, many children. This idea that you can be a Christian and not be part of a church goes against everything the Bible teaches. I mean, it's to, it, for one thing, this word removes selfish prayers, right? <laughs> Our Give all of us a fat, big, big fat bank account. We're praying for needs. I mean, does that mean we can't come to God with personal con- 
Concerns? Absolutely not. We can do that anytime. Read the Psalms. I mean, David was, you know, when he was running from cave to cave, I mean, it was all about him. But he also prayed for Israel. The pattern is the family first, then the individual, right? It's kind of like on the airplane when the things drop down and the oxygen things. You take care of the family first, then you take care of you. That's first, we're second. We can come to God anytime with personal needs, but we can't forget about the family. Well, we got a lot to consider when we pray. God is our Father, we are His children, and that's what our relationship is. Next week we'll we'll move on. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Father, for our brothers and sisters. Thank you for who you are. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would teach us more and more and more about you so we can have a much more uh, clear understanding of who you are as a father so we might be better children, Lord. Help us to do that this week, and thank you for how much you love us, the unconditional love that we always have from you. This sometimes means discipline for our good, but you always have our best in mind to bring us into the image of Christ. And we thank you for that because of him. Amen.